0: But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high walls with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as, as it is long. The angel measured the walls using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The walls were made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great streets of the city were of gold and as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are our its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On on no day will its gates be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life.
1: Well, what a fantastic reading to finish our series we've called The Commitment. Over the last few weeks we've been looking at what are the values of a committed Christian. And we've looked at some terrific topics like prayer and evangelism and holiness with humility and lots of other good things. Well, tonight we're finishing off our series and rounding it off by talking about the fact that Christians believe in heaven. And I want to ask you tonight, what is your idea of heaven? Well, I typed that question into Reddit uh, during the week and I got some interesting responses that should come up on, on the screen. I'm not sure if they'll come up, but hopefully they will. Catatomatic: 22 said that heaven was playing my video games and being left to the heck alone. Roberta wrote, heaven is no restrictions, except the ones I choose. Yeah. Must adult wrote, not having to worry about anything where you could do whatever you want. Interesting. Couscous explodes, my favorite name on the <laughs> Reddit that I found, <laughs> Couscous explodes. I'm not religious personally, but I've always imagined heaven in my mind as a stereotypical golden white city in the clouds with giant gates out the front. And Deary 3 has had a crack at this. This is an interesting one. Heaven and hell exists. Everyone goes to heaven, even non-believers. God loves everyone, no matter their race, spiritual uh, belief or nationality. So please, I encourage you to Christian. (laughs) I like using the word Christian as a verb. I think that's really good i encourage you to christian i think that means become a christian i think assuming that you're not an atheist no offense if you're not catholic or any other religion seek your nearest church and i thought that was that was um another interesting take on what someone thinks heaven's like the last one i've got for you tonight is deleted and i think this one probably gets the closest of all the reddit uh ideas which is you're in the presence of god simple finished sentence Well, what would your answer be tonight, as I asked? If you were to uh, think about heaven right now, what do you imagine? And more importantly tonight, what we're going to look at is, what does the Bible say about heaven tonight? It's important for us to understand what the Bible has to say about heaven, because in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, Paul encourages us that we're citizens of heaven. Up on the screen, you'll see that in Philippians 3, 20 to 21, this is what Paul writes... But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform your lowly body so that they will be like his glorious body. If the Apostle Paul was on Reddit, he might start with something like that. Heaven is important. Yet heaven is something that Christians, funnily enough, we don't think about very often considering that we are actually citizens of heaven and we are meant to eagerly await our Saviour who is in heaven and he is going to come back in the second coming to end the history of the earth and to create a new heaven and a new earth, yet we don't think too much about it. How can we think about that tonight? How can we help our vision of heaven expand tonight? Well, they to help us with that? I'm going to ask us two questions. The first one is, is heaven real? Is it actually there? Is there really a heaven? Do we as Christians, those of us who are Christians, and I'm not assuming everyone here tonight is a Christian, I'm not assuming everybody online tonight is a Christian, but if you are a Christian, do you believe heaven is real? And if you're not a Christian, could you imagine what it would be like if it was real? Well, we're going to ask that question tonight. And when we ask that question, we're going to use three categories that John the Apostle uses in Revelation 21 to help us understand what heaven is like. The first category is that heaven is the kingdom of God. Second is that heaven is the new Jerusalem. And the third category is that heaven is the new Eden. But that's not the only question we're going to ask tonight. Not only is uh, heaven real, we're also going to ask the question, who can go there and how do you get there? So let's have have a look at those two questions. And as we do, I want to give us a bit of background before we jump into Revelation 21. What I want to do is go back, all the way back, right the way back to the Old Testament, and have a look at what the Old Testament teaches about heaven before we start tonight. Now, there are 420 references to heaven in the Old Testament. Most of those are about talking about the sky or the solar system. So some of the Old Testament writers describe the sky above us as the heavens. You might have even heard people talking like that even to this day. But 25% of the use of the word heaven in the Old Testament actually refers to another realm, a heavenly realm where God dwells with his angels. It's interesting isn't it that the the Jews used the same word to describe the sky above us and the place where God dwells. Did they think that God dwelt there? Well some Mesopotamian cultures in the ancient Near East did believe that the gods lived in the space and in the heavens above us. Um, The Mesopotamians believed that there were three realms, there was the realm under the earth, there was a realm on the earth and there was a realm over the earth. And the spirits lived in the realm over the earth and humans lived on the realm on the earth. So while the Jews have used the same categorisation of heaven using the word for sky and also for uh, God's dwelling place, they didn't believe, however, that God actually dwelt in the sky or in the space. No, it was more of a metaphor to help us to understand that God's dwelling place is unreachable to us. So human beings before powered flight and space travel would have looked up to the celestial bodies in wonder and awe and thought to themselves there is no way I could ever reach the sky, let alone reach the moon, let alone reach Mars and beyond as we talk about today. See the ancients actually considered the sky to be completely inaccessible and that is a really good metaphor for the place where God lives because he is other than us and he is inaccessible. So the Old Testament does look at what this dwelling place of God is like. What is it like? Well, to help us tonight, there's so many verses in the Bible in the Old Testament that talk about heaven and it would be really wonderful um, maybe for you during the week to do a Google search. What does the Old Testament say about heaven? And read for yourself all the really interesting facts that the Old Testament brings about. But what you'll find is the idea of heaven in the Old Testament is a little vague. And I think deliberately so. But if we're going to get an idea of the teaching of the Old Testament on heaven, a good place to go is Job 19, 25 to 27, which should come up on the screen. Job 19, this is what is written. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet my flesh, in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. See, what you see in these verses is a hope of the writer that one day, even though he will die, he will live again. And when he lives again, there's this idea that he needs to pass through death in order to see God. That's interesting, isn't it? So there's this vague hope of an afterlife, even in Job chapter 19. And if you have a look around uh, some more, you'll find other examples of this vague hope, particularly, I want to turn tonight to Psalm 16, 8 to 11. In Psalm 16, 8, this is what the writer uh, says. David, King David writes this, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. Verse 10, Because you will not abandon me in the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life, You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So, King David is again yearning for this opportunity for him to escape death by putting his faith in God. That's a really important point. Now, in Acts 2, Peter actually refers directly to this psalm, Psalm 16, to describe Jesus and how he was resurrected from the dead. And he applies that verse particularly to him as a prophecy. However, for the writer, David, as the writer in Job, there is this personal hope for themselves too that they will experience some kind of resurrection, that somehow death will not destroy them if they put their faith in God. That's why David says, I keep my eyes on God. In other words, that's saying, I'm going to have my faith in him who has the power to rescue me even from death. Now in the Old Testament, there's only two examples of human beings who are taken directly to heaven. Enoch and Elijah and the New Testament doesn't talk about those two um, individuals as being some kind of template for other people's experience as we think about heaven but however there are two interesting stories about that in the Old Testament again you might want to look that up later and explore that for yourself some more but interestingly as the Old Testament talks about heaven it talks about heaven as the place where God dwells and the place where you can see God, and the place where people who have faith in him go. So let's ask the second question of the Old Testament, who can go there? Again, Psalm 16 gives us an explicit answer. So while David believes that he can go to heaven because he has faith in God, that God somehow is going to save him. He doesn't know how, because this is pre-Jesus, isn't it? He doesn't know how God is going to save the human race, but he still does trust in him, which is an amazing faith, to trust in someone that they can do something even though they don't know how they can do it. But see, David knows the character of God and he knows that God what he promises comes true and so he trusts in him. But in verse 16, he contrasts that kind of faith with a different kind of faith. In verse 11, it says, "'You make known to me the path of life. "'You will fill me with joy in your presence, "'with eternal pleasures at your right hand.'" But in verse 4 of Psalm 16, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more and I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take their names upon, upon my lips. So even though the Old Testament is a little bit vague about heaven, it does say there is a heaven and that faithful people who believe and trust in God will be able to go there, but that is contrasted with people who follow other gods. Now if you consider the Jewish opinion, they believe there was only one God. There are no other gods. So any other god that human beings worship is no god at all. It's a mute idol. And if heaven is the place where God dwells, it made sense to them that the only person who would access heaven is someone who trusts in the living God. So if there are other religions around that purport to be able to give people salvation from, uh, and save them from death, then they're not going to actually work because they're just pieces of wood and stone they're praying to anyway, basically. That's the logic of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament doesn't give us a lot of detail but it does answer our two questions in in vague generalities. The New Testament, however, is going to fill out this story and give us a lot more detail and that's why we've chosen Revelation 21 tonight to help us to understand what this looks like in a bit more detail. So turn with me to Revelation 21 and again these passages will come up on the screen. Now the reason that we can see heaven more clearly tonight than David could before Jesus is because the person of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus makes everything clearer. So in the Old Testament, everything was fairly vague, but when Jesus came, everything made sense. And so it's true about heaven too. Jesus brings a very practical and refreshing look into our eternal hope that wasn't there before he spoke. Revelation 21, his apostle John has a revelation of the new heaven and the new earth, and this is what he sees in verse 1. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now John sees a new heaven and a new earth. This is a description of a completely renovated creation. Remember back in Romans 1. In Romans 1, and we looked at Romans a couple of years ago at Soul Revival. In Romans 1, Paul says this very stark statement, which is that the whole of the creation... Groans under the weight of sin. Now you might not think about that, but according to Paul, our theological understanding as we look at us as people, the, the earth we live on, and even the stars, everything has been corrupted by human sin. Now I don't pretend to understand the depth of that, but I take that on face value. That the creation has been impacted by our sin. And now we see in Revelation 21, verse 1, a new heaven and a new earth. And there's this idea of transformation. Now, in Acts 1, 11, we're told that the time will come where God will restore everything, that Jesus will come from heaven and on his return, that will be the moment in the history of the world, which is still in our future. We don't know when this is going to happen. It could happen tonight. It could happen in another 100,000 years. We don't know. But there will be a moment in time where Jesus will return. Just as he came to the earth in the first place, he will come again. But in the first time he came to earth, he came to save us from our sin by dying for us on the cross so that anyone who looks to him in faith may be saved. But in the second coming of Jesus, he comes to end history. And that is unpacked even more in Acts chapter 3, verse 21. But here, John summarises that great day as a new heaven and a new earth is created. So out of the ending of the old will come the new. And this is, uh, is symbolised here, rather, in verse 1 by this mention of sea. It's interesting, isn't it? I used to get quite stressed about this when I was younger, because I used to like to go into the ocean, particularly like to go for a surf, and, and when I'd read Revelation 21, it says this, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Didn't bother me too much because the new one had come. Oh, but there's no longer any sea. How do you go surfing? Is there no sea. Where are the turtles going to live? What are going to happen to the dolphins? Oh, they, these are some of my favourite things. Does that mean they're not going to be in heaven? Well, like so much of Revelation, you've got to remember that there's this whole heap of symbolism that's being packed into these few words of John to try and give us a huge amount of meaning all at once. Basically, if the old order of things was full of chaos and sin and being corrupted by sin, the new order will have none of that. Now, to the Jewish people, the ocean represented chaos and danger because they weren't a seafaring people. And so in the Old Testament, often the ocean is described as almost emblematic of sin and corruption. And so if you're like me and you're like a surf, don't panic because I don't think this is saying there is going to be no surfing I think what this is saying, though, is there is going to be nothing to fear. That this is symbolising the fact that if we put our faith in God and go to be where he is going to create everything new, there's a metaphor here of peace and safety for all of us. Now, for us to really understand what this new heaven and new earth look like, let's use these three categories that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. The first one is the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at what the um, writer might mean of the kingdom of heaven. To do that, I want to look at verse 3 of Revelation 21. Verse 3 says this I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. Now, in the whole of the New Testament, the kingdom of God, and in Matthew it's called the kingdom of heaven, is the key focus of all the teaching. It's the key focus of Jesus' teaching and it's the key focus of the apostles' teaching as well. And it's the fulfilment of all our hopes and dreams. And here we can see that at the centre of this kingdom sits God. He is dwelling with his people and he is actually enthroned in that place. Verse 5, you can see this. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And again in verse 4 and 5 of Revelation 22, which is the chapter that, pres- that comes after this one, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need a lamp, uh, the light of a lamp to light the, for the, uh, of the sun. Sorry, I'll start that again. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and he will reign forever and ever. You see, God's presence is so transformative that this new creation is going to have a continuity with the old but a discontinuity as well. The reason it's so important that there's no need for a lamp or the sun is the idea here, according uh, to the writer, is that in the darkness, that's the time when we fear most. That's when people perpetrate the most evil acts. And if there's no night, there's no place to hide for anyone who would be mischievous trying to bring someone else undone. In other words, everything is brought out into the open and there is nothing that is hidden. Now, the question I've got about that is, yes, I understand that heaven will be the kingdom of God, but what does that mean for our lives today? How does that affect us in our daily lives? Well, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, this is what Jesus said when he first started his ministry. He said, The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. So what we we talk about as Christians is that when Jesus came to earth he actually came as king and so when he came in the presence of us we had the presence of God with us now we could see that through his miracles couldn't we in his authority over the spirits with his ability to heal the sick and the ability of him to control the wind and the waves he is obviously God his presence is amongst us and he's brought the kingdom to bear however in his wisdom he has come to call for repentance So the first stage of the coming of the kingdom is to give people an opportunity to believe and to repent. Now if God comes from his heaven to earth and says I have come so that you might be able to come to be with me in heaven after you die, what you see is a filling out of what David saw vaguely and what Job saw vaguely. What we now see is it's really clear. If we want to escape death and we want to believe that God, the only one and true God who can save us, will save us. We need to trust in his son Jesus. So we have this tension, which is called a now not yet tension. Yes, the kingdom has come. If we believe and we put our trust in Jesus, we are forgiven for our sin. We become members of the kingdom. God is living in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He no longer lives in a temple but he's in present with us today even though Jesus has gone back to heaven after he died and rose from the dead. He said to his disciples, I will leave the counsellor with you so that you will not be alone. So the Holy Spirit lives amongst us as we meet together and in our lives individually. However, we still experience suffering, sickness, death, sin and disease while we wait for the full number of those who will repent to take place. It's very simple. Jesus told his disciples in in John 17, I'm going to leave you here amongst the world so that the world might hear about me. Because if every person who believes in Jesus is taken away, like Enoch and Elijah, one by one we get taken to heaven physically, who's going to tell anybody about the eternal hope that we have? So the reason we come to church is so that we can live in this now not yet tension. And it's not perfect, but there's a glimpse of the eternity that we have when we do come together. We we live in a Jesus-shaped community and the Holy Spirit is amongst us. Coming back to Revelation 21, there will come a time though where the kingdom will come in its fullness. And all of that old stuff will be transformed. In verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, let's ask the second question. Who are the people who are going to heaven? Who are going to be the ones who get there? Well, if we go back to verse 2 of Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, it's interesting here that this metaphor looks on the surface to be a place that we're going to. And it well may be. It's a symbol, but it could be a symbol that's quite literally of heaven. When it talks about the angel measuring this place later in the passage, um, there have been people who've worked out that if you actually laid that temple out as a big square, it would pretty much cover the whole continent of Australia. Now, that's pretty exciting, isn't it? Because a lot of people could fit on the whole continent of Australia. That's a pretty big city. Statisticians worked out um, recently, last year, that if you put the whole population of the world living in the same density as people live in New York City. You could fit the whole population of the world as it stands now in Texas. Texas isn't even as big as Western Australia and that's the whole population of the world now, some six billion people. Imagine how many people are going to be in heaven. It's going to be a great multitude that's too hard to count. The New Jerusalem is going to be awesome everybody. If we understand this metaphor, though, what we're looking at is the city is described in all its splendour, with all the jewels and that that we don't have time to unpack tonight, but it is described as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And that's why this image is talking about the church. You see, going back to Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, it says this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. In other words, words, Paul says the gift of marriage is a symbolism of Christ's commitment to the church. We are the bride of Christ and he is the groom. And so this is an elegant description of the coming of the people of God on the last day. There is so much more we could say about this passage tonight. But what we need to understand is the people who will go to heaven to this wonderful reality are those who have trusted in Jesus. There's a warning too in this passage in Revelation 21 verse 27. As well as those people of God coming as a beautiful bride dressed um, for, for the wedding day, it also says here in this verse 27 that nothing impure will enter it or no one who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do you know if your name's in the book of life? Because if your name is not in the book of life, then rather than entering into the New Jerusalem, you'll be entering into the lake of fire that is described in chapter 20, preceding this beautiful, eloquent description of heaven is a terrifying vision of hell. How do you know if your name's in the book of life? Well, Jesus said himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. And then later in verse 12 and 14 of chapter 14, which isn't often what people uh, quote as often, but this is what Jesus says here, Very truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. And they will be do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. The only way you can get to the new Jerusalem is if you ask Jesus to take you there. And he says the only way to get there is by trusting in his sacrifice for you on the cross. It's a time of pause in a sermon like this because the last metaphor we finish with tonight is that the new heaven is called a new Eden. Basically, the New Testament... Wraps up the history that has started in Genesis, and there is a beautiful bookend at the end of the story. When God first walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, and there was no sin, there was a river of life. There was a tree of life. and now in revelation twenty two one to five, you see that in heaven there is a new river with the new water of life, and there is the throne of God and the lamb in the middle of the great city that we've just described. And there is a tree that stands on either side of the river. The garden city is where we go if we trust in Jesus. But one quick question to finish. What is your view of heaven? Because if your view of heaven is different to this view of heaven, you won't get there. Many people today think that if they believe it, it's true. And if they don't believe it, it's not true. Nothing could be further than the truth. If the Bible says it, it's true. And if the Bible doesn't say it, it's not true. How will that affect your view of heaven tonight? I hope it will help you to line it up with Jesus' view and the vision that John saw that we've talked about tonight. (laughs)